If you are looking to elevate your leadership and drive your nonprofit forward, I invite you to subscribe to the Successful Nonprofits newsletter. Every week, I curate exclusive shareworthy content that sparks inspiration, innovation, and conversation. From the latest trends to timeless advice, the weekly email newsletter is your all-access pass to a treasure trove of resources. But receiving the newsletter is not just about staying informed. It's also about getting our best content first. Subscribers get first access to our newest downloadable templates designed to propel your leadership and amplify your impact. And that's not all, my friend. We are constantly working on new ways to support you and your mission. So as a subscriber, you'll get updates on our latest projects, opportunities to participate in surveys, and a say in the topics that we tackle next. You will essentially get me as a consultant, coach, and confidant in your inbox, ready to help you navigate the challenges of nonprofit leadership. So if you're an executive director, board chair, or a nonprofit leader who believes in making a difference, join me as a newsletter subscriber. Visit SuccessfulNonprofits.com forward slash newsletter to sign up today. And now, friend, let me take you to the episode you've downloaded. Welcome to the Successful Nonprofits Podcast. I'm your producer, Lexi Linger. And today I am pumped to share part two of our Ask Dolph Live series. If you're a regular listener, then you've probably heard part one. But for those of you who didn't, here's a little bit of a background. So Dolph occasionally records Ask Dolph episodes when he answers questions you've sent in to him. One listener recommended we do a live version of Ask Dolph, so we gave it a shot. Last August, we met some of you listeners on Zoom and discussed the questions that have been on your mind, and of course, we recorded it. Today, I want to share the second half of Ask Dolph Live with you. I need to say a couple things first. Number one, huge shout out to the listeners that joined us back in August. We've said it before, you were the guinea pigs, you rocked, and we are so grateful that you took that risk with us and that we are here today sharing part two with our broader listeners. Number two, if you've got a question for Dolph, then I've got great news. We are hosting a second Ask Dolph Live session. Now, I am recording this intro in October, but if all things have gone as planned, then you are hearing this in early 2022, and that next Ask Dolph Live session should be coming up very soon. You can check our website and our social media for current updates. And now to part two of Ask Dolph Live. All right. I think next up we've got Christine, who you, you want to you talk a little bit about legacy giving. That's right. Um, we are very fortunate to get a request um, as a surprise every now and then, and we have for many years. But we have recently decided to formalize our legacy giving program and do a little bit more development around it. Um, however, given the timing of everything, the year-end campaigns coming up, we don't want to do anything 
too um, forward at this point, not to mention it's kind of out of the blue for most of our supporters who have not heard us talking about legacy giving up to this point. So we're trying to ease into it with some very casual approaches um, just to get the messaging out there that we have legacy giving options and here's more information about it without doing any direct solicitation. And so I'm looking for ideas about how else we can be casual in that approach. And then next year we'll dive more into the segmentation and direct solicitation. I, I'm glad to hear you say there will be direct solicitation because that's so really critical. And a, a friend of mine says, um, those of us that are in this world and are not working on legacy giving, it's malpractice. Like, you know, like it, it, it just is. It's like, it's it's fundraising malpractice. So good for you that you're really pursuing it and working on it. I got a couple questions. Um, your board, ha like have all of your board members already put your organization in the will? Um. <laughs> to be honest, we only have one person that I'm aware of um, who has come forward with that information. So that's the other side of this. Uh, because it's new, we have not had those kind of sensitive conversations with people who are likely considering legacy giving. But because we haven't had that formal conversation, those opportunities for them to come forward have not been brought up. And at this point, we're not necessarily asking for that information because, again, it's still so new. And so we don't want to be too forward too quickly. So here's the good news. With your board, you can't be too forward too quickly. You need 100% of your board to put your organization in each of their wills. 100%. And they, they don't have to leave 20% of their estate. They don't have to leave 50%. They could leave 1%. And, you know, so for some people, 1% of $10 million, I got to do some quick math. What's that? That's like $100,000. Um, you know, and, and if someone has an estate of, you know, $10,000, 1% of that, bizarrely enough, I actually can't do that math very quickly. It's a lot less than 100000 It's probably like 100 bucks or something like that. But, but if it's a fraction of an estate, a percent or half a percent, that to me, that's not a big ask of all of your board. And if you have a board member who's already done that, they're the person to lead that initiative on your board. They're the person to say, to literally have one-on-one -on -one conversations with every single board member and say, I've made the following contribution or I've made the following legacy plan and I want you to include something in your will as well. And, you know, and, and I don't know this one board member of yours, I don't know if it's 10% of their their estate or 1%. But, you know, they could even say, hey, you know, it could be a fraction of a percent. But we need to be able to say to the community, 100% of our board is behind this. And here's where I'm going with this. Um, so I think once you've got 100% of your board, first of all, how many board members do you have? I believe 12. Okay, 12. And so I assume when you more formally launch this next year, you're going to have some sort of a, a legacy giving circle, right? That would be the intent. But again, then we would need to know that people have left us in their will. <laughs> so it's kind of the yes, chicken and egg cycle. Yes. It is. And I've said this in a couple of meetings in the last couple of months. It is a chicken and egg, but here's the deal. We know which came first. The egg came first. It just was not laid by a chicken. You know, so so if we if we believe in evolution, and I do, right? There was something that was not a chicken that laid an egg and out hashed a chicken. So we know what comes first, and so that creature that's not a chicken but laid the egg is your board. So your board is the one that literally seeds this legacy giving circle, um, and they don't seed it with real money today. They seed it with money that none of us, frankly, care all that much about because it's money 
that we can't access because we're dead. Um, so, you know, so honestly, like to me, this is a, an easy ask of your board. First of all, if you've got 12 board members and you launch a legacy circle or some sort of, you know, group like that, you know you're going to have at least 12 members in it. You probably know about a few other legacy gifts that, have, that, that are in the works. And so you may have 15 or 18. And that looks impressive. The other thing, chicken and egg thing, when you start to publish that list, you can say, we have made every effort to include every planned gift. If you've made a gift and, and not shared it with us, please tell us because we want to recognize you. But so here's also then where I'm going with this. Then the soft the soft things that you can do, you can do legacy profiles. So if you have 12 board members, that's one profile a month. And so literally, it's it's not just saying, oh, our board member Jane left us in her will. But imagine like, you know, you could have a blog post, you could do a video where Jane talks about the importance of your organization and why she's leaving um, 1% or 2% or Hey, let's let's be ambitious. Fifty percent of her estate mm-hmm. to your organization, right? And so you could do a blog post. You can have social media posts. You can have video, and you know you can also cut video so you can get little snippets in social media. And so that one, that one gift as a legacy profile, you could probably use in eight different ways without a lot of extra work. So that's the first thing I think about. The second thing, I'm often amazed, Christine at how long it takes me to realize something. And so the first time I was an executive director and I was the executive director of a community center for the first couple of years, and you know, when, when you're an executive director or a development director, you're responsible for a legacy giving program. Typically at, at cocktail parties, everyone who knows where, where you work will go, oh, how are things at your organization? For the first two years, I would literally say fine. And one day I had this moment where I was like, Dolph, this is a huge missed opportunity. So all of your board members, your executive director, everyone who's in leadership at your organization needs to needs to be given a sound bite every single month so that when they're out and about in the community at their Rotary Club meeting or whatever, and someone goes, oh, how are things at your organization? They can say, oh my gosh, it, it, things are great. We just launched this legacy giving society and you won't believe this. We've already got 15 people in it. And oh my gosh, let me show you this on my phone right now. We have these profiles. Look at this person. Um, and so then you're talking about it. And it's not like you're going to monopolize the conversation, but you spend two or three minutes. You give someone, uh, you give the person you're talking to something that's really substantial, but it's another great way to get word of mouth about legacy giving. Yeah, I like little sound bites. That's, um, yeah, just enough to, to take with. Right. And again, I've shared with you, I was like two or three years into that job before I realized that probably thousands of people had asked me that question and I lost thousands of opportunities. I have one last thing I want to leave you with. Are you familiar with Tony Martinetti? Uh, The name actually does sound familiar, but I can't place it. So Tony is actually one of my um, podcast mentors. So he has probably the oldest continuously running nonprofit podcast. It's called Tony Martinetti Radio because it started on the radio. And and Tony and I talk every now and then. Tony is actually a planned giving expert. His podcast is not about planned giving, but he's a planned giving expert. He's an attorney. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, and he essentially does not really practice law anymore because he's all about planned giving. Uh, he has planned giving cohorts that organizations can join and it actually helps them build their planned giving. So I'll share with you... Um, you know, there are really no new ideas under the sun. And Tony is probably the person who first shared that idea of, hey, Dolph, if you're launching a legacy society, um, start with your board. 
because uh, you know because they're the chicken that lays that egg. So um, so I I would one hundred percent start with that. Um, and he was also on our podcast a couple months ago. I think actually talking about planned giving. And so we will dig up that episode. I'll make sure that I send it to you, and we'll put it in the show notes. Um, it's a it's well worth the listen. Great, thank you, Christine. Thank you. All right, uh, Kristen, I understand you've got a question about uh, financial sustainability for those that work in the nonprofit sector and employee comp. That is quite true, Dolph. But uh, before we get started, I have to apologize if you hear some noise in the background. Our town has kind of a history of railroading and there happens to be a train going by. So hopefully they're not too disruptive. Oh, wow. (laughs) I apologize. Um, Yes, I'm very interested in talking about nonprofit compensation and how that impacts the financial stability, present and future for employees. And I've given this a lot of thought that's kind of been percolating for a few years And I'd really like to make resources available to nonprofit employees so they can really make informed decisions as they move through their careers. So I'm interested to know what kind of resources may already exist. I I know you're passionate about the topic of compensation. So I'd like to see what kind of information you can share. If I hear you correctly, I think that these are resources for people who are working in the nonprofit sector, not resources for nonprofits who want to help their employees ensure some financial sustainability. There's the potential to come at the issue with multiple prongs. I've been having conversations with a friend who is an HR consultant and would love to come in at the organizational level and do assessments and look at salary parity and talk about ways to increase salary levels over a period of a few years. So that is a potential, but yes, I am looking at my personal experience and things that would have been really helpful to me when I was younger and moving through my career and how maybe I can develop a program or even my own nonprofit organization to share that with people coming up now. So the first thing I love is I think you've probably actually identified a gap in the marketplace because I'm not aware, certainly on a national level, there might be some smaller local entities, but I'm not aware of an of an organization other than some some unions that are organizing, um, you know, that are literally organizing some of the larger nonprofits and medium-sized nonprofits of an organization that's doing the work that you're talking about. I do think that it's critically needed. If you, if you don't mind, I'd like to share with you a couple of techniques that I have used when talking about compensation with some boards of directors. That would be fantastic. Awesome. So, so here, here's a handful of techniques that I've used. I love, um, and by the way, I, I was an executive director and I get as an executive director why this kind of thing sometimes makes us squirm and I get this. And it, all, and it usually also makes board members squirm. But so I love to take your employee list without the names and then list each annual salary from the highest to the lowest. 
and then look at your community's data and see what the average two-bedroom apartment in your community costs. And so as an example, let's say the annual salaries vary. I'm going to make these numbers up from from $85,000 at the top to $35,000 at the bottom. Um, And let's say there's like 15 employees. So I then figure out how much someone needs to make a year in order to qualify and be able to afford a two-bedroom apartment in that community. And so I draw that line on the chart. Um, So now board members can see how many employees fall above that line and can afford a two-bedroom apartment in the community and how many employees fall below that line. That is a powerful moment of cognitive dissonance when suddenly board members who are like, oh, I thought we were paying competitively realize, yeah, we might be paying competitively. This might be what case managers are making, you know, one zip code away or even in our own zip code, but we're not paying equitably because the people who are working for us, if they have anyone in their life that they're responsible for other than than themselves, can't even afford an apartment in the community they're working in. And I found that to be a powerful, powerful tool when having this conversation. I love that idea to actually put some numbers to the issue to help illustrate the point. I think so many people, both employees in the sector, but certainly people outside, really fail to understand how important, regardless of the type of work you do, that compensation is. I mean, it sounds very logical, but yet the way people look at nonprofits, I don't think they understand. Yes, I get a lot of satisfaction from the work I do, but I do also need a salary. And so to paint a picture that would really help them to better understand the issue, I think is vital. And it sounds like you're thinking about starting this as a nonprofit organization. Correct. I have considered maybe a B Corp, but initially it was a nonprofit and that's still how I'm leaning. I will be frank and say, I would strongly encourage you to consider a B Corp. I think there's a lot of good reasons to do it, but one of the best, and, and I know this can be a little bit scary, is then you also have a little bit more of a, of a market drive, which means if you can't get nonprofits or others to pay you for it, i.e. they find enough value in it, then you've got to reconfigure your services. And I think that market drive is going to make you much more relevant to both nonprofits and their employees. Okay. I I will definitely find out more about B Corps. That is something that I've really only started considering within maybe the past few weeks. So I would have a lot to learn, but I value your opinion and I will definitely look into it. And, you know, and after I say that, I always have to say, you know, I'm not a lawyer. So definitely talk to a corporate attorney, um, compare Compare 501c3 nonprofit corporation, which isn't inco- which is corp- incorporated, um, or, or B Corp. So definitely, and also talk to an accountant. But the other thing that, that you will see then is as a B Corp, you're building something that you have a share in as well, as opposed to a nonprofit where, um, you know, any of us who've been in this sector long enough have seen, um, you know, frankly, a founder, director after 25 years get forced out. Um, and it's, it's, a, it's a painful thing to watch when it's something that a person has built. I never considered it from that angle, but I did also think maybe it is a way to 
walk the walk as I'm discussing this issue of value of the contributions nonprofits make and that we should compensate them as such. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, 100%. Also, you know, it's either a nonprofit or a B Corp. There's, there are a lot of ways that you can partner with financial advisors, banking institutions, et cetera. And, and in either of those scenarios, there's possible um, revenue models for you there as well, in addition to potentially charging nonprofits for services. Uh, an organization I want you just to take a look at, they are a nonprofit, but they have a model where they do charge, they also get um, private funding through foundations and individuals, but they have a model where they do charge nonprofits um, for the work that they do, and that's the Nonprofit Finance Fund. And that's on the organization level, not the individual level. But I think if you look at them and look at their model, it, it could be a really powerful one for you to think about. Thank you. I will definitely look them up this evening. I am about to submit an application for an idea incubator for entrepreneurs through Penn State University. And my intent in going into that is to really do some data gathering to confirm what I suspect is a need and then direct services based on that information. Also look at it as a baseline. But is there anything that exists like that already? Anything that surveyed employees? So there are a lot of different organizations and tools that have surveyed employees and have data on it. Um, so, so those are out there and they do exist. Is there anything that maybe has surveyed employees about their needs as far as financial literacy or financial planning, anything along those lines? Yeah, so I don't know of any surveys around their needs around financial planning and literacy. I, I do know there's a lot of employee surveys in the nonprofit sector around benefits. Uh, there are some national ones. There also are some local and regional ones. Frankly, the local and regional ones probably provide probably a better a better data than the national ones because the national ones end up being so broad. Thank you very much. I will definitely access those as well. Thank you, Kristen. Thank you. I appreciate your time. So... Lexi, quick question. Anyone else, or do you want to pull one from the mailbag? Because I know some people emailed you questions as well. All right. Dolph, what tools do you recommend for holding board members accountable? Oh, my gosh. So, so um, it's funny. Joe was just mentioning my book, and I'm like, uh, so that, that's pretty much my book. And that, now I'm going to tell you if I was to write that book today, some additional things that I would put in it. Um, so some things that are already in there. You've got to have alignment on clear expectations. And, you know, so everyone on the board has to understand what percentage of meetings is the minimum that a person must attend. Is there a give-get? And if there is specifically, what is it? Uh, Is there a requirement around committee participation? Um, And if so, what does that look like? Are you expected to attend every meeting? Are you expected to, at some point during your time as a board member, chair a committee? Like, really clear alignment on all of that. And then that rolls into your recruitment process. So making sure those expectations are super clear when you're doing that recruitment. Uh, You know, so often 
when we're recruiting board members, we try to minimize what we're looking for. Oh, yeah, we want you to make a gift. Oh, yeah, we hope you're going to do some fundraising. And, you know, we, we know you're busy, but we hope you can attend board meetings. And then we scratch our heads when they join the board and they don't raise any money. We have to, we have to like, nag them from December 1st to December 31st to at least make a, a dollar contribution to the organization. So you can say 100% of the board gave. Um, and, you know, and, and you're like, gosh, why, why are they not the board member we want? The other thing, and, and by the way, you'll notice I'm not yet talking about holding them accountable. I'm just talking about setting the table so that you can have an effective board and effective board members, and then you can hold them accountable. Um, the other thing, and th- this for me is kind of a, a radical idea. I've done it with a couple clients, and it works. It is radical, though, and if I were to rewrite my book, it would be in the book. Um, so imagine doing your new board onboarding before they join your board. And now imagine that your new board onboarding is not a three-hour session, but it's a multi-session. I'm going to take a quick tangent here. I'm sure I've talked about this before. There are three goals of orientation, and that is your board orientation should inspire, it should inform, and it should initiate. Most of us in the nonprofit sector view it as just in form. And oftentimes, we don't even do it that well. So, you know, again, we bring board members in for new board members in for three or four hours, and we point a fire hose of information at them. And after 30 minutes, their brain goes numb, and they walk out four hours later. They've remembered two things. And guess what? They actually are less inspired than when they walked in. They're like, oh, gosh, I'm tired. I'm exhausted. Um, it, it's it's just not a good way to start your board experience. And so imagine instead if you had four or five mini sessions of one hour each and you did them consecutively over the course of months. So if you had four, you would do them once a month for four months. And if you had five, obviously you do it for five months. And so your first session would probably be on governance. Hey, this is how the board runs. This is what our bylaws say. These are your three legal duties of board service. This is, these are the legal duties, whether you're on our board, you're on um, the homeless shelters board, or, you know, you're on a community center's board. These are your legal duties. You should know what these are. Um, and then, of course, in that governance section, you talk about committees and, you know, the, com- the expectations of committees. Typically, your second section will be on programs. Um, and so that's where if you have a committee on programs— that committee will present. If you don't, whoever your chief program officer or director is would probably present on that. The third is on finance. And so typically your treasurer and your CFO would partner to put together a great presentation. By the way, this one can't be a snore and it can't all just be, now we're going to show you our 990 and teach you how to read a 990. You know, we're talking charts, graphs, but also really driving home how the numbers show what's important to this organization and how the organization's values are reflected in those numbers. The fourth one um, will typically be on fundraising because we all, at one level or another, want our board to be doing fundraising. That might be your fundraising chair who partners with your chief development officer or your development director. And then your fifth one, if you serve a very specific constituency, whether that's people who are deaf and hard of hearing or the LGBTQ community, you might want to do a 411 on that very specific constituency. So that way, you're not making the assumption that every board member is up to date on everything that, that's culturally relevant for that particular constituency. And so those might be your four or five sessions. Here's the thing. You then also have some homework 
between each. Not a lot of homework. The governance one will probably be, okay, attend a committee meeting, complete your conflict of interest disclosure document, and meet with your board mentor. The program one will probably be shadow one of the following programs sometime in the next month. Um, you know, so you kind of go down the line. By the way, the fundraising one, super easy. Solicit your first, make your first gift and solicit your first gift. But so here's what you're going to see. If you're doing this and you're doing it before they get appointed to the board, you're going to know who washes out. And so, you know, if you have six people who start this process, you might only have three people that come out of it, and that's okay. What you've just done is you've created a little bit of a barrier to entry, and some people opted not to complete it. And guess what? Those are going to be your bad board members. So now you're getting the people who are committed, who have followed through and have the bandwidth to be a good board member. So so once you've done all of that, here are some other things that you can do to hold your board members accountable. Make sure they have a scorecard. So we talked about that clear alignment on expectations. All right, so you know, every month they should see what their board meeting attendance is, what their give-get is, what their committee participation is. Um, The other thing is a good leadership team on your board. As the executive director, sometimes our board will look to us and ask us to do something that's not appropriate. The board will say, hey, Toph, you know, Charlie, Charlie has a real attendance problem. Could you please talk to Charlie about that? And the answer every day of the week is no. I can't talk to board member Charlie about that because only the board can govern the board. As the executive director, I report to the board. Only the board can govern the board. And what that means is you have to have a couple people on your board leadership team who are willing to be that enforcer, who are willing to have the conversation with board members and say, you know, let's talk about what's going on. Are things busy at work? Are you having some issues at home? Because right now we're not seeing the level of performance we want to see from our board members. Um, And then the last piece is I always encourage boards to think about leaves of absences for for those members who are not meeting expectations. It is, it is a gentle, friendly way to say, hey, you, you know, first you have that conversation, what's going on? Typically people will say work is really hectic or they'll say, oh my gosh, with COVID, I've got kids at home, I'm homeschooling, I'm trying to work, I don't have a moment for myself. And then it opens the door to be able to suggest that they take a leave of absence of three months or four months and make the commitment that Again, it's that board leader will make the commitment to follow up at the end of that leave of absence and say, hey, are you ready to recommit or do you need to step away? What I love about that model is that it gives your board members agency. Instead of you as a board saying, okay, guess what? You didn't meet our standards. Get off the board. It's the board member saying, you know, I've had four months of not feeling guilty about being a bad board member, and I like that feeling, and so it's time for me to step off the board. And now they can step off the board on much better terms. So as I think about um, how to hold your board accountable, that last piece, which is the actual holding accountable, is the least important. If you do everything else, if you set the table for accountability from recruitment through orientation and also then through supporting as they're on the board, the accountability piece just kind of handles itself. So that that would be my answer. And I'm sorry, Lexi, the person's not here for me to go, hey, is that helpful? <laughs> but I hope it's helpful for someone. Listeners, I hope you enjoyed that as much as Dolph and I did. Remember, please check our website, that's successfulnonprofits.com, and our social media. We have Facebook and LinkedIn. 
and upcoming podcasts for more information about our next Ask Dolph Live sessions. And now for the disclaimer, we are not accountants or attorneys, and neither I or nor Dolph nor the Goldenberg Group provide tax, legal, or accounting advice. This material has been provided for informational purposes only and is not intended to provide and should not be relied on for tax, legal, or accounting advice. Always consult a qualified licensed professional about such matters.